I'm Mark Harrison from CFA Institute, and I'm joined today by Jim Walker, who is a leading regional economist and founder of Asianomics Group Limited. Dr. Walker also serves as an economist at Credit Lyonnais Securities Asia at the Royal Bank of Scotland and as an economics researcher at the Fraser of Allender Institute. So welcome, Jim. Thanks very much, Mark. And my first question um, I'd like to start with uh, concerns the three largest developed markets, um, the United States, Europe and, of course, Japan which, as you pointed out in your uh, recent presentation, all of which uh, have no dollar-denominated growth for the last three years. Mm. So can you please um, tell us what's going on and how does this impact investors in the different asset classes? Yeah, sometimes I wish I knew what was going on, especially in policymakers' heads. But uh, actually, the U.S. is, is OK. Um, I think everybody knows that the U.S. economy is growing. It's certainly the bright spot of the, the, the developed market universe. And perhaps the policies over the course of the last few years have have done something to add at least some dollars to the system, uh, quantitative easing and, of course, the, the zero interest rates. But this is where it then becomes very different when you move to, to Japan and to Europe, because the, their versions of quantitative easing basically result in their currencies weakening against the US dollar. And what that does is it begins to shrink dollar-denominated GDP in these countries. And so the, the, the cumulative effect when we put them all together is basically that the three biggest developed regions or developed countries in the world have added nothing to the global economy in terms of dollar-denominated GDP since 2012. And that's very bad news for, for anybody who's exporting in US dollars, which is basically the rest of the world, or producing commodities which are priced in US dollar, which is an awful lot of the emerging market universe. So with all that in mind, how can investors position themselves um, going forward? It's difficult. Um, I, I mean, when we look at these kinds of policies and, and uh, then look at what they've actually done for the domestic economy, the US has been slightly, I, I think, um, lucky in, in the way that the, the domestic economy has, has been uh, pushed by disruptive technology and things like the shale oil industry and the energy sphere. That, that's been good news for the US. And of course, its housing market had had fallen dramatically. So there's been growth in the US. But I think going forward, that growth is going to be much more problematic, especially in terms of earnings. And that's really what we're interested in as investors. Where's the profits going to be? Where are the earnings and companies going to be? And again, of course, when you shrink the, the, the European economy in dollar terms, or translate earnings back into US dollars at a much lower exchange rate, profits are going to be squeezed in a lot of the S&P 500 companies as well. So what we are trying to do is look for where the, the growth is in nominal GDP, where the profit cycle is relatively positive, where policies um, are actually producing economic activity and corporate earnings growth. And I would say a, a lot of the, the Asian emerging market universe is looking pretty good in that respect just now. So we tend to be very long India, uh, long ASEAN, and a bit more concerned about China. So perhaps you could talk in a little bit more detail about those developing markets that you've mentioned, mm. other than 
uh, India-China. About the ASEAN markets, because they tend to be relatively forgotten these days. In fact, we put out a report recently uh, following a tour that we did through Southeast Asia about forgotten Asia. In actual fact, they're doing really quite well. Uh, given the, the dearth of uh, global export growth, and when we look across the uh, the, the Asian universe, what we find is that aggregating Asian exports together, there's been no growth in exports since uh, mid-2011. And yet economic activity levels and, and certainly GDP growth levels in a lot of the ASEAN countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia to a certain extent, slightly less so Thailand, increasingly now Vietnam, these are all economic activity levels that have held up much, much better than you might have expected, given the, the, the export overlay from the developed world. What we think is happening here is that uh, mobile technology, the internet, mobile telecommunications, is beginning to penetrate these countries to such an extent that domestic demand is becoming a much, much bigger factor in their economic growth rates and a much bigger cushioning factor when exports are weak. And you've talked about the golden era of Asian growth just beginning, and you mentioned one or two of these mm. these factors. Um, are there anything else that we should know about? Oh, well, there's lots uh, that, that needs to go on in order to, to secure that golden era. Of course, we've been talking about the Pacific century for, for quite some years now, and we, we're really not focused on that. But what we think is a potential golden era is that takeoff of domestic demand. Infrastructure plays a big role in this. In, in the West, it was physical infrastructure that helped connect economies. Today, as I've mentioned, it's, uh, it's mobile technology, it's, tele it's uh, virtual infrastructure, if you like. But the other thing that is required to keep economic growth going and to sustain uh, a very positive outlook for these countries is much better governance. So the reduction of corruption, the reduction of business costs, making it easier for companies to form, making it easier for them to do business. And that requires a political shift as well. Um, the good news, I think, that's happening in a lot of countries in Asia. The, the bad news is that it's not particularly quick. And for investors who are not specialists in economics and the economics discipline, mm. can you talk a little bit about um, the economic workings of, say, exchange rate crises and um, commodity price changes, such mm. as the recent one in, in oil? in a bit more detail. The, the oil price is actually a very interesting one. That, that, uh, you'll hear a lot of talk, um, unfortunately, amongst people who are slightly mistaken in the way that they approach things about the falling the fall in the oil price being deflationary. Um, it's not deflationary, it's a relative price adjustment. But by that, what we mean is basically that the oil price has fallen, but money in the system credit in the system has not been affected. So there's more money available to go to other goods and services. Uh, that might mean that their prices go up, or it just might mean that there might be a greater demand for those other goods and services. And to a certain extent, increased demand eventually for oil as people begin to say, I can drive a bigger car again, which uh, might not be environmentally very friendly, but if they've got more money in their pocket, they tend to do these kinds of things. But that's, uh, that's what's happening with the oil price. It is not destructive of demand. It is redistributive of demand from producers to consumers. When we get to the currency side, that, that, that's somewhat different. Um, this is where we could see a real deflationary impact on the global economy. That's what QE in Japan and quantitative easing in Europe 
means for the global economy. It destroys US dollars by weakening those currencies. It also encourages everybody else to do the same thing, especially if uh, countries view the prospect of uh, their exports being taken up by somebody else, com- competition be- becoming much keener. And that results in potentially um, a-, a war between countries as regards their, uh, their currency levels. That's very uh, destructive of demand and it's very destructive uh, of economic activity generally. So the currency crises that we're seeing at the moment are uh, much more problematic than, for example, the fall in the oil price. Thank you. And we're chatting here today in Kuwait City, obviously in the Middle East, and it has its own specifics and its own sort of drivers. Mm. Um, how do you think that Middle East-based investors, perhaps even the sovereign wealth funds here, should um, be positioning their portfolios in the light of, of what you've been saying about Asia mm. uh, and, and so on? Well, I think the, 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 these are fairly sophisticated investors anyway. They, they, they've been looking around the world for years at uh, various places to uh, to invest. We, we've seen that um, anybody that's been involved in, in stockbroking over the, the last 25 years knows the names of the, uh, the big Middle Eastern wealth funds and uh, asset managers. Uh, they've been involved in Asia, they've been involved in the West, they're involved in every asset class. I don't think they really need to do anything different. Um, they, they, they know that there are limited resources in, in this part of the world to put money to work. It's just a question of where they feel most comfortable with the prospects for economic growth, for corporate earnings, uh, for returns on fixed assets and uh, safety in currencies. That just means that they've got to do their homework and hopefully subscribe to services like ours. Thank you. And what do you think is the single most important change that could be made um, within the finance sector to enable it to better serve society? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, You know, I think the the truth of the matter is that this goes back to Adam Smith uh, and the whole concept of self-interest and the idea that in uh, following a self-interested life, not a necessarily greedy life, but in serving your own self-interest uh, best, you serve society best because you produce returns that then can be um, distributed in a way through the rest of society. So I think just good management of funds, good management of uh, assets and investment, which then returns more money to the, uh, the people who are invested in those funds or who depend on those funds, is the best thing that uh, investors should do. They shouldn't really be worried about uh, about social issues, and in that sense, they need to worry about the returns for their uh, for the people invested in their funds. And how do you see the future evolution of the financial service industry within Asia? Within Asia, um, in certain areas, uh, the, the, it's probably been built out too too far. Um, it's over invested. Uh, it's probably in, in some countries overbanked and overbroked. But at the same time, the, the, the requirement for deepening of capital markets in a lot of the region, uh, including the Middle East, so from uh, corporate bond markets to, uh, to re- derivative markets, and even further deepening of the equity markets as alternatives purely to banking, which still dominate in Asia, uh, is an important way forward. There's plenty to uh, there's plenty to do as regards deepening financial markets and uh, rounding them out in Asia, and I'm pretty sure that that process will be 
going on for the next 20 or 30 years. Well, thank you, Jim, for your sharing your thoughts with us today. And thank you, the audience, for tuning into this episode of Take 15. Copyright 2015 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.